Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, open your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2. Um, you'll, if you have my notes, you may have noticed that like somehow I managed to forget an entire introduction. Um, I was, been a tough week and uh, I was working on two different computers and saving that onto the cloud and apparently there was some mishap. So uh, I will just wing the introduction. Fortunately, I know what I want to say um, and I apologize. I found several typos and whatnot that uh, I would have normally edited out, but it is what it is and... As they say, I'm a highly paid professional. I think I can take care of this for you. But Acts chapter 2 is our passage, verses 37 to 41. Acts chapter 2, 37 to 41. Hear now, again, the word of the Lord. 37. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and let each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God shall call To himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then, those who had received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Now, in the book of Acts, as we saw in chapter one, Jesus had risen from the dead. He was now with his apostles, at that point still his disciples, but his apostles, and he taught them for an incredibly long time about the nature of the kingdom of God, which is why we then spent a significant amount of our time understanding what is meant by the kingdom of God. And then he gave them a simple command. He's like, you are to go and stay in Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And that was his last command to them. And then he ascended into heaven and they watched him. The angel rebuked them in a gentle way and said, why do you stand there watching and looking like that? In the same way that he went up, he shall return. You go obey. So they did. They went and obeyed. They were in Jerusalem. They were in prayer. And on the day of Pentecost, a very important feast day for the Jews, where people would travel very long distances from other nations who were Jews to come and celebrate. It was at that time that the promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit took place. 
And you'll recall that there is this loud rushing like wind-like noise. But more importantly is that the people who were gathered for prayer waiting for this event had no idea when it would occur. And when it did, that they began to be able to speak in foreign languages that they did not know. Commonly it's called tongues, but it simply means a foreign language. It's not an ecstatic speech. It's not angelic speech. It is something that is a gift given by the Spirit for the purposes of communicating truth. And that's very important to remember. You will recall that when they were speaking, that the many, many uh, Jews that were from foreign lands and who spoke foreign languages could hear now their own language being spoke, and it was telling them of the mighty acts of God. So they were hearing these people testify of God's mighty works. Out of that, then, there became some decisions to be made. What do we do with this unique phenomena that is happening? Because these are Galileans. They would not know these languages, but they are speaking them perfectly, and we hear them. So what is happening? And so some were amazed, some wondered, and and were intrigued, and some mocked and said, well, they must be drunk. It was at that point, then, that Peter stood and he gave his sermon that we spent two weeks looking at. This sermon captured basically two things in which he confronted the people with. The first was that he confronted them with the fact that they were now in what is known as the last days. He says, this is that which was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And in this, the outpouring of the Spirit was that main key event that was to occur that would begin to set into motion the final workings of God's plan. And I pointed out to you that not only have they been confronted with the reality that they live now in the last days, and therefore, if you will, borrowed time, but so do you and I, that even today we're still in that last days. The second thing that he confronted them with, though, was even more important, and that is he confronted them with the person and work of Jesus Christ. He put right in front of them the Jesus Christ that they crucified and he had confronted them with him. He confronted them with the reality that he was the one sent by God, and that he rose again. Now, having done all of that, they come now to, we, or we come now to verse 37, where they are then struck with this reality. Now, in all of this comes one hard reality. They are guilty. They are absolutely guilty, and they know it. They are sinners. These are Jews. These are not people who lived in another realm and did not know who God was. These were men and women who know God. They know about God. They know about sin. They know the cost of sin. They know what high-handed rebellion does. And those of you that have been reading through the Bible with us as a church, you know how the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, they deal very strongly with intentional, high-handed sins. These people were guilty. They were sinning. They had just killed the one who had come to be their king. Where is their hope? What they needed was to be forgiven. But can they be forgiven? How if they can be forgiven, how can they be forgiven? And that's exactly what 
is dealt with here in these few verses. And so the purpose of this sermon is to take all of you, whether you're saved or not, whether you're a Christian or not, and take you through the idea of what does it mean and how is one forgiven of your sins. I want to give you four simple steps in this passage on how your sins are forgiven. And so we'll jump right in because there's much to say. The first step is simply this in verse 37. Uh, it's built off of what 30, uh, verse 37 says. It is that you must first hear and understand gospel truth. I'll explain that in a second here, but you must first hear and understand gospel truth. Now, the men of old had come up with certain terms about how one has saving faith, how one believes and are saved, because the scripture says that you must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're forgiven, you're saved. So how do you know if you've believed? And they came up with certain terms, they're Latin terms. Many of you know these already, but I will say them again just because it's helpful. Men of old used the words notitia and the census to speak of this idea of hearing and understanding the gospel. Notitia is simply the facts, the notes, the notations. It's the facts, the content of the gospel. You have to know what the good news is. If you don't, there is nothing else for you. The second thing you must have is you must have a census, which is that you must agree or accept those facts. Now, understand that that is not enough to save you. But those are two critical steps that must be present. Until you hear and know and accept what the good news is, then nothing else will ever happen. Nothing can happen because this necessary first step is missing. And I want to make this a huge point to all of you, especially those of you who are Christians in this room. You must get this through your mind. No one ever will come to faith any other way, ever. No one until they hear and they understand. That must take place first. You will never see anyone have forgiveness of sin until they understand. I've mentioned in the past a very well-known saying that's attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, which says, Preach the gospel at all times, use nerd, and if necessary, boy, I'm messing that up. Preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Now, it's very likely that he never said that, but it's attributed to him, and people like to quote it, especially today in our very soft uh, evangelicalism that we see in the American church today where virtue signaling and social justice issues are gaining an ever-growing place in the pulpits rather than the gospel, where we are to show the gospel, live out the gospel truths, be displaying the gospel. Beloved, that is not the gospel. It is foreign to the Bible, utterly, absolutely foreign. So if you think that somehow you are winning people to Christ or you're helping the gospel move forward because you're acting a certain way, you are mistaken. The gospel cannot be seen in your actions. It must be heard, it must be read, and it must be grasped 
by the mind or heart. It is a propositional truth, meaning it is either true or it is false, but there is no middle ground. And some of you need to understand that. It is that absolute. You don't consider Christ, think about Christ, try Christ. It is something that you must hear. This is why in his final letter before being killed for his faith, the Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and said, preach the word. Don't live the word. Don't display the gospel. He says, you preach the word. I don't care if it's convenient or not to you. You preach the word. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, the well-known passage called the Shema, which every faithful Israelite would recite every single morning, it says, hear, hear, O Israel. And then they they proclaim a propositional truth. The Lord, or Yahweh, is our God. Yahweh is one. You must hear it. You can't live that. You must hear it. Over and over again, the Isaiah, the prophet, and the other prophets will say this, hear now the word of the Lord. Hear it. Jesus taught in parables in Luke, and he records him as saying this, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus spoke to the crowd in Matthew 15, verse 10, and said, hear and understand. You must understand these things. Paul makes it so brutally clear in Romans chapter 10 where he quotes the Old Testament and he quotes a passage that Peter quotes in this sermon he just preached in Acts 2. Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be what? Will be saved. So he's like, that's a good word. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So then he asks a series of questions that he's driving at. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? You won't call on the Lord for salvation if you don't believe in him. And then he says, how will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And then he goes to the final step. And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they hear? This is what we see in Peter's sermon. Peter in Acts chapter 2 gives a simple scripture-infused sermon that proclaims key points regarding the person and the work of Jesus Christ. He showed that Jesus was a true man, that Jesus was approved by God the Father, that he was in fact God's man, that he was the Messiah, the one who had been promised from old throughout the Old Testament who would come, God with us, that he was murdered But even that murder that occurred where he was killed on the cross was according to God's saving plan. But more, most importantly is that not only was he murdered or killed, but he rose again on the third day. He rose from the grave. And it was with those realities that he gives a simple declaration that this Jesus, whom these people who were hearing him preach were guilty of crucifying, is now seated in the heaven until the Father judges and destroys all his enemies. Well, beloved, let's just use our brain for a moment. Who are his enemies? I would 
I would suspect that you would easily understand that an enemy of Jesus Christ is one who killed him, right? And these people are guilty of that very thing, and they know it. And now he's seated in the heavenly place, and the Father is going to bring all of his enemies underneath his feet, and they're terrified, and rightly so. None of this was just lived out before the people, though. Paul, or Peter didn't say, well, hey, guys, let's just show our love for them. Let's just really show kindness. We're going we're gonna to bring them the love of Jesus in what we do. None of that is the issue. Peter understands, and you and I must understand, that the only thing that matters is, did you tell them the gospel? And so he stood up and he proclaimed to these people a very difficult sermon, and he did with no fear because it was the only way that they might be saved. Beloved, not only did they need to hear it, but you had to. Every one of you in this room right here who is a Christian, at some point you heard the gospel. Somebody was faithful to you. Somebody. You understand that, right? You sit here claiming Christ for one reason. Somebody loved you enough to tell you. It could have been mom and dad. It could have been Grammy. It could have been your friend or your coworker, but somebody spoke the gospel. Not lived it, spoke it. My goodness, I know you. Some of you had the gospel shared to you by people who don't even know Christ themselves. Well, let me say this. The people you live around need to hear it too. It's that simple. That's your responsibility. It is the goal and purposes of Missio Day that we teach that you have been saved out of this world by the gospel, but that therefore, because you've been saved out of this world by the gospel, God then sends you right back into this world with that same gospel. Missio Day means the mission of God. What is God's mission? Jesus said it. Just as the Father sent me into the world, so I send you. You can build relationships all day long. You can produce all kinds of good acts and show works of great mercy, and all of that is fine, but it is not the gospel. These effects are, these are simply effects produced by the gospel in you. You should show good works. You should show love for your neighbor. You should do great acts of mercy. You should become a kind and gentle soul. You should be a pleasure to be around, but a gift card is not the gospel, and it never will be the gospel. If you're to be faithful to the call to go and to make disciples, then at some point you have to speak the good news. There is no forgiveness of sin without knowing the gospel. That's why I'm making such a major point on this first step, because if you miss this first step, nothing else will matter. 
the effects of that speaking will re- result in something. That when you speak about that, you will see people who will reject it, some people who will mock it, some people who will wonder about it, some people who will have questions about it or be intrigued or have fear and conviction. Well, many of the people that Peter spoke to ended up with fear and conviction. Not all. Many of them walked away shaking their head. Many of them walked away thinking he is a whack job. Many of them thought that he was borderline blasphemous. But a bunch of them were afraid, and rightly so. And that's why we now can go to the next step on how then to be forgiven of sin. If you know the gospel, the truths of the gospel of Christ dying as our substitute for sin, because we're sinners and we can't die even good, so we need someone to die in our place, that he died for us and he rose again defeating the enemy of death and that he's returning again to judge the living and the dead, and that only those who are trusting in Christ alone for their salvation. You have to know that, and you have to accept it. But that's not salvation, beloved. That's almost salvation, and almost salvation puts you in hell. The second thing, then, is in verse 37. You must come under the conviction, then, of your guilt and helpless condition. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced or pricked to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? What is happening is the reality now has sunk into their minds and fear is the result because they've heard and they understand. They're not debating this. Do you see that? There's no debate of, well, wait a second, what do you mean by murder? Because we didn't actually drive the nails into his feet. We didn't stick the spear into his side. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. We weren't the ones in the judge. We weren't, you know, you can hear it. You can hear it the same way you hear people do it today and rationalize away everything. These people were owning the fact that they were guilty and they wanted to know, is there anything that can be done? And this was not just an individual question. This is a corporate issue because the Jews as a people were waiting for their Messiah. For 400 years, they were waiting for their Messiah. And when he shows up, they reject him and kill him. The whole point of their existence was to wait for the day that their Messiah would come And in that, they would find salvation, and they murder him. What can we do? Is there any hope? But it was also very individual, and it was piercing them to the heart, And they, but they didn't just stay there. Many, many a soul is in hell today because they come under the conviction of their sin before the holy God, but they never go beyond that. Two examples from the scripture. One I'll just make reference to, and the other one, keep your finger here, but go to Acts 26. The rich young ruler is a well-known passage where a, a, a young man who was wealthy came to Jesus and fell at his feet and said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus then lists various things that he was to be doing. And he says, I've done all of those since my youth. He said, well, one thing then you still lack, give all, sell all of your possessions and give it all away to the poor 
And he walked away very sad because he had many possessions. Now, all kinds of people try to make all kinds of points out of that passage that has nothing to do with. All Christ was really doing was showing them him that he still had this massive idol. And that idol was that he had his riches before his God. And I'm just going to say it and, and, and throw it out there. Is it not possible that some of you, that you have God in whatever way you think you have God, but other things are before him? And if so, then you're an idolater. And all he did was expose this young man who was doing all sorts of good, righteous things, but he managed to miss the whole point. And that is that you shall love the Lord your God with all, not most, all your soul and all of your heart and all your strength. And so it says the young man walked away very sad. Oh, he was convicted. And then he walks away from the very source of salvation that is Jesus. But King Agrippa, Paul has been made to appear before him. And in verse 28, he has just been working through the gospel. He's been sharing his own testimony. And so in all of this, he is speaking all of these things to convince him. He says in verse 27, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Why is he asking that? Because the prophets of the Old Testament spoke of this coming Messiah. He says, I know you believe them. Do you see it? They got the notitia and the ascensus. He's got some of the facts. He's not even arguing with them. And then Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time, you will persuade me to become a Christian. And Paul said, I would to God that whether in a short or long time, not only you, but all who hear me this day. His only desire is, will you believe? Will you believe? I don't care if you do it now or later, but you need to believe. And here is, and there's no record of Agrippa ever coming to faith. He was another man who was intrigued. He heard, he even had some level of conviction and guilt and sense of responsibility, but it never went beyond that. Beloved, conviction is the awareness that there is a God, but much more than that. But that's where it begins, that there is a God. Second, that you're not in a right relationship with that God. And you say, well, how do you know? Well, let me ask you this. Is your life completely given to him? Is it Godward? Do you arrange your life under the reality that God is present? Do you understand that conviction lets you know that you are guilty before him and that he will judge you? In other words, it's not a mild form of guiltiness that you can shrug off and go on with your life. Rather, it's like these Jews. Their hearts become pierced through. Jesus was the one that was sent by God from heaven. They understood that they murdered him and that he didn't stay dead and that he was going to judge them. They're guilty. They know it. And most certainly they know that Jesus knows it. And so they are shook and stunned to the very core of their being. 
So these people are not like the young ruler or King Agrippa. They're not intrigued, and they're not almost persuaded. This is not an intellectual exercise for them anymore. Something else is happening. Something radical is going on in their heart. They are terrified. They know to the very innermost part of their being that they are in deep trouble, and they need to know, is there a way of escape? And what you see here is nothing less than the great work of the Holy Spirit convicting them. Listen to what John 16 says. John 16, verse 7 and 8, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage, Jesus is saying this, it is to your advantage that I go away. Why? For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper is the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so there you see it a massive group of people hearing and seeing the power of the Holy Spirit who enables these people to speak in foreign languages and tell of the mighty works of God. That you see the work of the Spirit. Then the Spirit empowers Peter to speak a clear, powerful exposition of the Spirit-inspired word. And so they hear that sermon Some are mocked, some are offended, some are intrigued, some, though, come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This whole thing in Acts 2 is a work of the Spirit from beginning to end. Their hearts now are cut open. It's like what the Word of God is described in Hebrews, where it's a living and active sword, able to cut and divide that which is indivisible, the bone and the marrow, the soul and the spirit. Only the power of the Word of God, working with the Spirit of God, is able to do that. Now, what happens when that work occurs? Well, it's what we see here in our passage. What can be done? They need forgiveness desperately. Is there any hope? Is there any way out? because they are guilty. They're not arguing anymore. No more excuses, no more assurance. They're fine and things will work out. Some of you are even right now still thinking that. These are people who have been stripped naked before their creator and they see their guilt. They see their rebellion. They see judgment. They see wrath. There's this great mind shift that's occurring. Better yet, it's a great heart shift that only God can do. One of the weird things that you'll discover, if you ever decide to get into serious, serious Bible study, is the sheer number of books out there, very scholarly works written by men and women who have made it their life's work to study the Bible and to work out the things of the Bible, especially on a high scholarly level with Greek and Hebrew, and yet not believe the gospel. I have commentaries sitting on my shelf where I I just get so angry as I'm reading them and to the point that I finally just say, you're done, where they're telling you everything doesn't say what it actually says in the Bible and they do everything in their power to express disbelief in the very Bible that they're trying to explain to you. Beloved, it is easy for you to sit in this air-conditioned room on nice, comfortable chairs and fool yourself into thinking that you're a Christian because you accepted a few facts 
and you call yourself a Christian, but it does not make you a Christian. The first step is to hear and to understand. The next step is a work that only God can do, and that is to bring you under the conviction of your sinfulness. These people who write these types of books are unmoved. They sit as critics. They calmly observe from the sideline the claims of the Christian faith, and they they talk about how it doesn't quite mean that and this, and they're very calm about it until perhaps God is pleased to convict them. I know of one, a very famous scholar she was, one who constantly spoke about how the Bible was a work of man and how she then came one day to faith in Christ. And it was an earth-shattering, life-altering reality for her. And she lost all of her credentials. Everyone mocked her. They no longer had anything to do with her. She was always held in super high esteem within the high scholarly world that she operated in. And she became a fool. And she writes of the fact that she lost everything, but she gained everything in Christ. When you come to the fact that you're guilty then you're in the place where Acts is at. These are people who observed a few Christians who are now speaking in these foreign languages, and now they have become one who is now under the weight of the guilt. So you must know, hear, and understand the facts of the gospel. Second, you have to come under conviction of that. The third step is you must repent. Verse 38, first part, And Peter said to them, repent. We'll stop right there and we'll go into the next one. That'll be my my final step. But you must repent. Such an important word. It means to turn from something, to have a change of heart, to change your ways, a change of direction. But it starts always in the heart, the mind. But beloved, it never stays just there. It's a lot more than just a mental attitude of regret. It involves an abandoning of your old ways and a turning instead of your heart to Christ. In fact, the word repent is often used with this return to God or to turn back. So in Acts 26.20, Paul said they should repent and turn to God. In Acts 3.19, repent and return so your sins may be wiped away. First Thessalonians 1, 9, for they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. This return, our turning to. So up to now, all of this has been rather straightforward for you. For those of you here who are Christians, I haven't said anything you don't know abundantly well. You see the preaching of the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ in Peter's words. You see the conviction. You see the call to turn their minds and their hearts away from their way to only Jesus Christ. But all of this is still internal, right? At this point, nothing is seen. Nothing is tangible. All we know is that the Spirit of God has told us that they're pierced to their heart. You don't know that. I don't know that. If you were standing there, all you would do is hear their words. What must we do or what shall we do? 
but you don't know that they've been brought to that level. And so what Peter now does is take it out of the internal and he moves it into the external. He moves it out of thinking and into actions. He moves it from the abstract to the concrete. And so he says, be baptized, be baptized. And sadly, it's here that all sorts of confusion and unhelpful teaching can come into play for many. In fact, if you did know it, many, many different people use this as a key passage for infant baptism, for baptismal regeneration. If you don't know what that is, don't worry about it. For the removal of the guilt of Adam, or to be baptized only in Jesus' name, that there's an entire movement that's the Jesus-only movement. And therefore, it's not a passage we can quickly pass by. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to do a brief excursus starting next week on baptism just to clarify for the many of you who are newer here the nature why baptism is the way it is and what baptism actually speaks of. Peter has just preached his first gospel message, right? The response is, what shall we do? There's this desperation, and the answer is repent. This is the internal aspect. Turn and then be baptized. In fact, all Peter's doing here is actually obeying the command Jesus gave him in Matthew 28, where he says, go therefore into all the world and make disciples. Remember, make disciples of Jesus is the command And the way you do it is by going, and the idea is going with the gospel, and then baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You saw that happen on Easter, right? And then teaching them to obey all that I commanded you. So all he's doing is obeying the command, repent and be baptized. But along with this are two phrases that are attached to the command, that, again, confuse people. They are to be baptized in the name of Jesus and for the forgiveness of sin. But in reality, what he is talking about in this be baptized in the name of Jesus, it's very important to hear this, is he's actually describing the final step of how to be forgiven. And that is to believe. You must believe. And you say, where does it say that? It's all the way through verse 38. So let me explain to you why I can tell you that it's believe is the final step. In verse 38, he says, be baptized. Let each one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And then what's the result? For the forgiveness of your sin. And you shall receive the gift of the Spirit. So why does that, where's the word believe? Well, it's not there, but it's there. And I think I can show it to you rather easily. That very first phrase that they were to be baptized in the name of Jesus is where it's at. Because what that means is that they were to be identified with Jesus. They had to be radically willing to identify themselves with the person of Jesus. In other words, they had to show that repentance, and the way they were going to have to show the repentance is to be baptized in the name of the very one they killed. 
And by doing that, it was also to be showing that they believe he truly did rise from the dead. It's not teaching, beloved, a new formula that's different than what Jesus taught about being baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It's not talking about a new formula that we're supposed to do our baptisms by. It is saying that they have to now identify themselves completely and utterly with Jesus. In other words, they were to do this baptism, and a baptism is very public. It's not something you do hidden, where you are now publicly declaring, I believe in who? In Jesus. And that's what it means by being baptized in the name of Jesus. That's why I can tell you with absolute confidence, you must believe. Because you would not, as a good, faithful Jew, ever allow yourself to be baptized in the name of Jesus unless you believed in Jesus. Understand that every Jew there knew what a baptism was. Baptism or baptismals, were all around them. When you were in a state of uncleanness, and again, if you're reading through the Old Testament right now with us in our Bible reading, you've seen that, where there's all these different things that can happen to you that makes you unclean ritually, means you can't go to the temple, you can't worship, you can't offer sacrifice, because right now you're unclean. And until you're now clean, you can't do that. Well, one of the things that they would do is once you came to the end of your uncleanness, whatever it was, whatever thing made you unclean ceremonially, when you were all finished, so you were clean, you would then go and be baptized. And they had these deep pools throughout Jerusalem, especially around the uh, the temple, where you would disrobe, and then basically your underclothes, you would then completely immerse yourself in the water and come back up. And all it was doing was signifying that something was true, that you truly were now ceremonially clean and you could go and worship. So when he says, be baptized in the name of Jesus, they didn't have to say, what, 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 I don't know what baptism is. They knew what it was and they knew what it was representing. This baptism was to represent what has occurred, what has occurred. The Jews had rejected Jesus. They had him crucified They now believe that he was and is the Messiah. They now believe that he rose from the grave. What must they do? They must identify with him, and that's going to be done through baptism. And this is also then where the final aspect of saving faith comes in. We talked about notitia and the census, the facts, and agreeing with them. Fiducia is that you love them. You have trust in these things that this now becomes your life, that you delight in them, a hope in them. They knew the facts. They're not arguing with those facts. But the question is this, will you trust your soul to those facts? And everyone who would be there that would baptize, be baptized in the name of Jesus in front of a crowd that was like the crowd they had around them was showing yes, I believe in Jesus. That's why you'll never get sympathy from me if you tell me you're too nervous to get baptized. I'll never give you sympathy. Nobody's here with a pitchfork ready to pierce you through. 
Nobody's here ready to lop your head off or, or anything else. You don't understand, beloved. These people, many of them lost everything as a result of this. Some of them, their spouses divorced them. Some of them, they were cast out from their households. Some of them, no one would shop with them anymore. They were that bad. They identified fully with Jesus. It was a radical thing that he was asking them to do. It wasn't in a nice warm pool in a hall with two pastors and a restroom to go get changed and all the other comforts that we have. It was radical. But it didn't matter because it was the work of God that they said, I identify with Jesus. And therefore, it gets to the heart of our sermon today, that second phrase, for the forgiveness of your sins. That, that little word for, I always teach people that the more important words are not usually the big ones, but the little ones. The word for is a, the word prepositions called ace. You don't really need to remember that. I just do it for my own brain's sake. The word ace or for is con, con, commonly translated unto, into, or for, but they still don't really give you the sense of what is meant. There's two ways it can mean. So think about this. Two different ways that for the forgiveness of your sins is. One is purpose. It, that word ace can convey purpose, which would mean that Peter was saying this, be baptized for the purpose of the forgiveness of your sins. That, that's how you're going to get your sins forgiven is through baptism. If he's saying that, then he's contradicting the entire New Testament, Right? And if you don't know that, he is. The whole of the New Testament, including Peter's own words, is contrary to that, that you're not going to be saved through the water. The other way it can be translated, and totally, it just the context is what defines it, is this. It can refer to reason or because. So you would translate it this way. Be baptized because of the forgiveness of your sins. Do you see how radically different that is? He's not saying go get baptized so that your sins can be forgiven. It's because you've repented, be baptized. And if you say, I won't be baptized, then what do we know has not occurred? Your forgiveness, the sins had not been forgiven because you do not believe. But if you believe that Jesus is the risen Lord, you will be baptized. Now, the argument is often given that baptism is the way that saves. And part of it is they look at verse 39 and says, for the promise is for you and your children. So they say, see, it's not just for you adults, but all of your kids and including the babies. And so you can bring them and they can get baptized for the forgiveness of the sins as well. And that's kind of the idea where the idea of infant baptism came into the church many, many centuries ago. Unfortunately, it's got nothing to do with it. Verse 39, where it says the promise, the promise is not for the forgiveness of sins. The promise is the giving of the Holy Spirit. That when you are saved, when you are forgiven, one of the promises that you receive is that you receive the Holy Spirit. And this is what every one of you who is a Christian has. You have the Spirit dwelling within you. The Spirit seals you to the day of redemption, keeps you safe, 
And that is the promise that was given. Now, I don't have the time today to look at these passages, but understand that the whole point of the promise is linking to the receiving of the Spirit. And it's, it's something that we then take to the whole world. So he says, not only are those there hearing this true, that they too can receive the Spirit, but also those who are far off, which is speaking of the Gentiles, the ones like us, who then from that day forward began to hear the gospel as the many people traveled with the gospel to other lands. And all of this is in accordance to God's sovereign will that he shall call to himself all those who are near and far off that they are called by God. In other words, no one is almost saved. No one is partially saved. When you go through these steps I outlined for you, when you repent and when you turn to God and when by faith you place your trust in Jesus alone, beloved, you're forgiven. If you're here and you're like, I know I'm a great sinner and I know that I am guilty under the Lord, then the only thing I can tell you is then repent. You must turn away from your whatever other way you think you're going or what else you think you need to add. You need to repent of that, be done with that, and have Christ alone. Nothing else matters. But the promise is so awesome. If that is true, your sins are forgiven. And so in verse 40, meant many other words he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. He didn't just end it there. He then just started begging the people and crying out to all of them because you know that this is radical. He is saying, come and be baptized in the name of Jesus. And there's a lot of talk and he's exhorting them and exhorting them, come, come out from this. Come out from these people. Come out from this world and this world thinking and be saved. This is what you as mom and dads need to do with your children. This is what you need to do with your neighbors. This is what you need to do even maybe with yourself. It's a costly call. It means you turn your back then on this age, this world, everything that promises. It means that you see this age as broken and perverse and twisted. It's not your home. It's not your friends, so stop making it that way. It's not adding Jesus to your life. It is an utter, complete abandoning of one life and embracing another found in Jesus. It's an all or nothing affair. Now look at verse 41 as we bring it all to an end. We see the results. So then those who had received, here's that word believe, that's built in, building in the idea of believing again. They received his word, were baptized. There were added that day about 3,000 souls. They did it gladly. This sense of glad, being glad is, is built into the word received. It's not one of reluctance. You don't get drugged. I, I get angry when I hear people say, yeah, I was drugged, kicking and screaming into the kingdom. I'm not sure you were in the kingdom then. You're not drugged reluctantly to Christ. You flee to Christ. You find out that not only is he your judge, but he is your way of salvation from that judgment, and you run there. Gladly they received him. No reluctance, no halfway measures. 
It's with joy and hope. Because it's at that moment that you realize, I have been snatched from the jaws of hell. I just told you, a dear brother may be dead. Will you not fear? Do you foolishly assume you have today even to live out? Will you not be saved from this perverse generation? What is it that this world has for you that has ever given you what you thought it was? One thing, name it, and I will tell you you're a liar. This world has done nothing but deceive you. Will you not be saved? Will you not, with joy, run to Christ alone and be saved? Let me again speak. This spiritual situation for anyone who does not believe is terrible. They either reject and hate, or they just simply live a life ignoring God. They suppress the truth of God that is in their very heart. They give glory to the creature, creation and the creature rather than the creator. And on that day, and that day is fixed, beloved, you cannot escape that day. That day where he says, you stop breathing. You are now in my presence for judgment. What day is that? Do you know? Any of you? Are you that foolish? You know, I, I remember driving my motorcycle when I was 18, or just about 18, and all of a sudden a car came in, in front of me, and I hit him head on, and I'll tell you how quickly I started thinking about how quick life ended. It was amazing as I was flipping through that air how many thoughts went through my mind. It can be snatched, and it will be snatched. There is never a good day to die, beloved, unless you're in Christ. And then every day is a good day. Because now you're free, and you're with your Lord. Will you repent? Will you believe? And then to you who have believed, will you not share this? Let's pray. Holy Father, only by the work of the Spirit does any man or woman come alive. But our call and our responsibility as men and women, young and old, are to be people of the gospel, speaking the gospel, pointing people to Christ alone. How will they hear unless there's a preacher? Will you not put it upon our hearts that we must repent of withholding that 
which alone brings life, that we might become bold, that we might put off the lesser things. And Father, I pray for our sister Judy again as she is in the midst of incredibly difficult decisions. That that comfort that only can come via you would be resting upon her. Be upon, give that comfort to the children, but also let them see the reality of what death looks like, the frailty of life. Let us all examine ourselves before the word to make it all the more certain that we are in Christ. Let us not be fools. I ask in your son's holy name. Amen.